0: There is a reality as we look to um, Isaiah 43, 1 through 7, and we're going to focus on verse 4 and even the first part of verse 4, and we are reminded of something, that there is hope, and there is hope because there is a covenant-keeping God, and that covenant-keeping God will be faithful to his own glory and to his covenant and to his word and to his people, And he will be faithful to his people even when his people are unfaithful. And there is a great hope because we know that there is a servant who would in fact obey. And that servant makes this all possible for us. And that servant being the Lord Jesus Christ who would be crushed even for our salvation. He would give his life that we might have life. Uh, Israel is a servant who disobeyed. The northern tribes, as we are reminded, disobeyed, and God takes them away by way of the Assyrians. And then their southern brothers have the opportunity to look and learn for what happened to their northern brothers, but they did not. And years later, what happens? The Lord takes them away by the hand of the Babylonians. And now God is saying to wicked Judah, uh, despite your covenant treachery, I will be faithful to you until the end. And he makes this glorious statement in verse 4 that they are precious, that they are honored. And he says, and I love you. I love you. Now, what we've done in this passage in verses 1 to 7, as you see, this is part 3. As we now focus on verse 4, we notice that there are five qualities. There are five qualities of our God that I believe the text is communicating, and and as I have meditated on it, my wording is this. These five qualities overcome fear, and they absolutely guarantee that God's redemptive plan will unfold. And if we can rest in that sort of assurance, that means that we can have spiritual boldness in life. And that spiritual boldness is grounded in the grace of God. Now, in this message we're going to focus on the fifth quality and that quality of love. We've seen for others, and now we focus on love. Um, several weeks ago, we introduced the thought about that, and we can hold up, we can go back. We're not ready for that quite yet. Um, we will look at this quality of love. Several weeks ago, we developed it by doing what? We looked at the idea of God's love throughout Scripture. And we we highlighted a number of books where God demonstrates His love. And I'm just praying, it is my prayer, that this morning um, we can see God's incredible love, outstanding love, immeasurable love, as we consider it through some theological implications. When I say theological implications, we're going to look at some words and ideas and thoughts. Say, for instance, This morning, we're going to consider the Trinity. How does the Trinity show love? A word, aseity, which I'll explain later. How does that show love? Foreknowledge, how does that show love? Providence, how does that show love? Even the perspicuity of Scripture, how does that show love? What about mercy and love and wrath and love and chastisement and love and then penal substitution and love? We see it through all of this. God demonstrates his love. And it's my prayer as any preacher who is worth his life breath should pray that you would hear the word of God. And I want you to hear this proclamation, this grand proclamation of God that he loves you, his covenant people. And having heard this from God, that that would encourage your hearts. Now, God's self-declaration that he loves is uh, very selective in Scripture. Now, the statement that he does love and that he is a loving God is widespread. But God actually saying that I love you in some fashion is unique. And when we think about its uniqueness, when we hear it and read it and study it, it should be something that should strengthen our souls Because there will be moments in life when our souls are not as strong as they should be. Do you agree with that? Uh, The scripture tells us even when I had the privilege of teaching the women walking wisely on Monday. We looked at 1 Thessalonians 5.14. And Paul there says, I urge you, brethren. He says, first, that you would admonish the unruly. Or admonish those that are out of step. Warn those who are out of step. And then he says, you must... Um, encourage the faint-hearted. And the word, as I share with the ladies, um, literally is the idea of being a small-souled person. You encourage them. And then you must help, then, the weak. And then you must be patient with everyone. So this idea, encouragement, is very much a part of our Christian life. It is one of the one another's. And we know that there are people, and sometimes... There are people right next to us that need encouragement, and we're not even aware. Now, I know there are people that are sitting here right now that need encouragement because of what has happened, and it's hit them in a very personal way. And these occasions allow us to demonstrate God's love, even as I communicated in the notes that I sent you that we want to be a vessel of God's grace to other people. So when we think about this unique declaration of God saying, I love you. Think about that. Consider it even for a moment. Now, the expressions of God's love are are, are very clear in John's gospel. Um, Unlike any other gospel and perhaps like any other book, we see so directly these statements about God being a God of love and God loving us. Turn with me, if you will, to John's gospel. And, And I want us to spend some time seeing this as we're going to work our way through it. Um, John 3.16, we know this verse, do we not? Everyone say it together. What does it say? Amen. Amen. Who learned that before they were a believer? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> look. Let's look at John 11. John 11. And it says here, Of Jesus, speaking of Jesus, Lazarus is sick. Lazarus will die. And it says, whom you love is sick. So it was evident that Jesus Christ had a love for Lazarus. Notice verse 5 in chapter 11. It says, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Look at verse 36 in chapter 11. And notice what it says here, see how he loved him. Because in verse 35, those great two words, and they say what? What are those two words? Jesus did what? Wept. See how he loved him. Look at chapter 13 of John. Chapter 13 of John. It continues. In 13 verse 1, it says, having loved his own, he loved them to the end. Preparation closer and closer to the cross. Notice verse 23 in chapter 13, and it says the disciples, referring to the disciple, that is John, whom Jesus loved. Verse 34 as well in chapter 13. Notice what it says here, even as I have loved you, you're supposed to love one another. Go over to chapter 14, chapter 14 of John, fourteen twenty-one, and there it says, I will love him and disclose myself to him. That is, those who trust me, believe me, have genuine faith in me. Then in chapter fifteen, chapter fifteen, verse nine. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. fifteen twelve. Love one another just as I have loved you. Chapter sixteen. And there it says The Father loves you because you have loved me. Then in 1723, and Christ makes a statement here in his great prayer, I want the world to know that I love them. Now notice the statements often they're simply saying, notice how he loved him or it's a declaration of his love. But we notice in chapter 15, I have loved you. I have loved you, he says. God loves us. Now, in the context of um, Isaiah, God's declaration is even more pronounced because, as I said earlier, Yahweh speaks these words to a people who have demonstrated covenant unfaithfulness. But his words are what? Expressions of covenant faithfulness and affection. Whereas the people of God have rejected the covenant. They have rejected his affections. And what have they done? They've gone after the affections, are shown affections to the gods of the world. And they have rejected Yahweh. You say, well, how have they rejected Yahweh? They rejected Yahweh because for every prophet that they killed, for every prophet that they rejected, that was a rejection of Yahweh because the prophet spoke for Yahweh. Do you agree with that? And so as the people of God would go after strange gods, And they would demonstrate their deviant thinking and behavior in all sorts of debauchery. They had rejected the moral law. So he says, in the midst of that, you're precious in my sight. You're honored and I love you. Wow. That's good news, isn't it? (laughs) And I'm just praying this morning that this will be a great reminder to us all. And perhaps it will be a salve for those that are hurting. And for those that are listening to me and you don't know the Lord Jesus Christ and you have not experienced his love, that this might be a day that you repent and surrender and come to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and experience this great love. Because this God loves the sinner. He loves to redeem sinners. He loves to reach for sinners. He has died for sinners. And what did Jesus Christ say? I did not come for the righteous, but he came for what? For the sinners. I I came for the lost. This is our God, and we should appreciate that. Now, I've said to you before, and I'll probably say it again in this message, that some people would think that somehow love is not worthy of as much consideration, that there are other doctrines that perhaps are more lofty, and worthy of our theological uh, investigation. That is utter and complete foolishness. It absolutely is. Absolutely just an undeveloped theology and no real understanding of even God himself. Because the scripture says very directly, specifically, and biblically, God is what? Love. So, now since it's been several weeks, I, I do need to briefly review with you And I am going to preach less than I normally might so we can have some time at the end. And I do want you to notice that beautiful structure that you saw earlier. And I drew your attention to it. And and I color-coded it so you could see what I mean when we talk about a chiasm, a a chastic structure. That is, you see the parallels. God says, do not fear, I created you. Verse 7, do not fear, I have created you. Verse 1, verse 7. And then he says, Do not fear, Yahweh shelters you, verse 2. Do not fear, Yahweh shelters you. Then in verse 5 and verse 6. Then he says, Do not fear, Yahweh saves you, the first part of verse 3. Then he says, Do not fear, Yahweh saves you, verse 5. And then he says, Do not fear, Yahweh ransoms you, verse 3. Do not fear, Yahweh ransoms you, the latter part of verse 4. And right in the center is this Do not fear, Yahweh loves you. Beautiful structure that is telling us what these parallel thoughts as they build in their argument towards the centerpiece and the centerpiece is in fact god's love and I would even take you as I see some of you taking pictures of it, take it by all means, and maybe i 'll just upload it later on um, to the anchor it so you can review it and think about it and meditate on and meditate on this great reality. Of our God's love. So it's not something I just created and thought, let me just make love the centerpiece of the argument. No, God has, through His inspired Word, told us, focus on this reality that I am a loving God. And all the other things that I'm doing for you is because I have this covenant love towards you, loyal love. I have that Hesed for you loving kindness for you, steadfast love towards you. So indeed, I'm the one who created you and I shelter you, I will save you, I will ransom you because I love you. This should encourage our souls, whatever we face in life. Let me briefly um, review for you. And really briefly because I need to get into the heart of the message. Number one was do not fear because Yahweh has created you. We see that if you look at Isaiah 43, Isaiah 43, we obviously see it in verse 1, even as I showed you in the outline itself. Um, I am your creator, he says. And then in verse 7, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed, even whom I made. So we have these thoughts that are bookend with, God creates us, and therefore we should think to ourselves, if God is my creator, then I owe him everything. Then I must do his bidding. I am the creature, he is the creator. I must walk with him. I have no sovereignty over my own life. That sovereignty is now the living gods. And then, do not fear because Yahweh shelters you. Notice, if you will, verse 2, just briefly, he says um, in verse 2, that when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. The rivers, when you walk through fire, you will not be scorched. And so these images here to communicate that whatever you experience in life, whatever happens in your journey, I will be there for you. And we, uh, I told you about this word, which is called a merism. And what that means is here is fire and water. Those are the extremes. And what he's saying, fire and water are the extremes. And everything that happens in between, I will be there for you. I will help you. He is a God who shelters us. And then as well, God is the one who ransoms us. Notice, if you will, verse 3, the second part of verse 3. He says, I have given Egypt as your ransom and Cush and Sheba in your place. That is, I will allow these Persians to take these other countries, but they will not take you. They will deliver you back to your land i control the nations and he's already established that we saw that in chapter 40 because the nations are just a drop from the bucket and god uses the nations for his own bidding for his own sovereign power for his own sovereign will and for his glory and then notice if you will he says i'm going to save you i'm going to save you in verse 3a he says for i am the lord your god the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. Verse five. Notice where he says there: "Do not fear; I am with you. I am your Savior. I am the Emmanuel. I walk with you." And then he's also the one who will ransom us. Um, notice, if you will, verse three. We we noticed it already. I'm sorry, um, Egypt. There's your ransom. Cush and Sheba in your place. Then also in verse four, the second part. He says, I will give other men in exchange for you and peoples for your life. God ransoms us. Now, we come to this fifth consideration. Don't fear Yahweh loves you. He loves you. Now, all of these are in this perfect tense, which means I, I have loved you and my love remains. Is what he's communicating. You're precious. Notice what it says in my sight. You're honored. And the word "honored" here actually is a word that means uh, from to be glorified. You will be glorified. How can they be glorified? They're away in exile. How can they be glorified? They are sinful people. How is this possible? Well, it's only possible because of God's divine intervention. And so what God will do, he will raise up the Persian empire. And in particular, he will raise up Cyrus and Cyrus will come and defeat the Babylonians. And he's saying, I will glorify you. You don't deserve it. You're precious, but you don't behave that way. And I love you despite yourself. I ask you a question right now. Um, Aren't you glad that God loves us despite us? Amen? Wow. Imagine if it was based on performance. Imagine if it was based on you striving and seeking after the living God with all your heart and with all your mind and with all your might. Where would you be? It's settled. I love you. And we notice even throughout a number of other, books of the bible in genesis we saw love and god creates in exodus and deuteronomy i establish a covenant with you i'll make you my people and the psalms we see constantly how the psalmist is communicating even in the difficulties of life he's saying i love you in jeremiah he says that great statement in jeremiah 31 i've loved you with an everlasting love and remember jeremiah is the one that's preaching and saying the babylonians are coming But what were some of the prophets at that time saying and some of the priests saying, no, don't believe Jeremiah. As a matter of fact, let's put Jeremiah um, in a big pot and let's lower him down and let's see if we can get rid of Jeremiah. And that was Judah rejecting Yahweh. And Jeremiah was saying, no, they are coming for you. Judgment is coming because you have rejected the living God. And then the false preachers were saying, no, peace, peace. And Jeremiah says, no, there will be no peace for you. I mean, you see that sort of um, preaching today. We, We tell people to serve the living God. We tell people to hold fast to these truths and the word of God. And then these false preachers want to tell us, no, no, the believer, the child of God doesn't face hurt and difficulty and pain and suffering. That is so untrue. We have hurt and pain and difficulty. And in this instance, it is brought upon them because of their own sinful choices. And there are moments in our own lives. It's not that we sought that ill that was that came upon us. God says, here's hurt. Here's pain. Here's suffering. Will you be a steward of it? Pain and suffering and difficulties are stewardship. Because what God is doing is saying, I'm entrusting you with this. Grow in me. Why would we think we can escape when the perfect man did not escape it? Jesus Christ. He says, I love you. Even when you're in sin, I love you. I will be faithful to you. We should be faithful to him. And we looked at uh, uh, several other texts as well, all the way to the book of Revelation. I need to get into the heart of it now. The theological implications of God's love. And I give you nine. Nine theological implications of God's love. Now, uh, rest assured, each one of them, uh, we could stop and have a nine-part series <laughs> on each one of them, but for the sake of this message and that I leave you with these thoughts, we will get, make our way through it. Number one is this. God's love is modeled because of the Godhead. It's modeled because of the Godhead. We see Trinitarian love in John chapter 5. We surely see it in the prayer of Jesus Christ in John 17. We see Trinitarian affection, and we see Trinitarian design in John 5, because we see the order of all things, how redemption you understand what I'm saying, so just look there briefly. Look at John chapter 5 briefly. These testimonies that are given in John chapter 5. We notice that in John chapter 5 verses, it'd be really 33 to 35, Uh, It starts this idea of witnesses. So the witnesses, John is a witness um, of Jesus Christ. He testified about the truth. You should believe this truth. Christ says in verse 36, then, my works are witness. Um, If you don't want to believe John, look at my works and all that I've accomplished. They testify that I was sent from the Father. Then now, if if it's not the works, then look to the Father. And the Father who sent me has testified of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen in you, for you do not believe him whom he sent. So the Father testifies of the Son. And why does the Father testify of the Son? We see throughout John's Gospel that the Father testifies of the Son to glorify the Son. And then he says, There's also the witness of the Scriptures. The Scriptures speak of me in who I am. And notice what he says in verse 41. You do do not receive glory from men, but I know you that you do not have the love of God in yourselves. Why do they not have it? Because they have not believed John. They have not believed the works. They have not believed the Father. And they're not believing truly what the Scripture is communicating. The Trinity working hand in hand. The the Spirit glorifying the Son. The Father testifying of the Son and the Son glorifying the Father. We see this throughout uh, John's Gospel. And of course, the words, as I are already communicated, the Son saying that the Father loved me and I love you. Secondly, consider this. God's love, is totally pure because of aseity. And aseity, this means to be from self. It's a declaration of God's self-existence. He is a God that is without cause. We see this in Exodus 3. Exodus 3, God makes a declaration. I am that I what? I am. I have no beginning and end. And we see this idea in Acts chapter 17. Turn there to Acts 17. Let's look at that briefly. Acts 17. Acts 17, verses 24 and 25. It says, The God who made the world... And all that is in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. He is the source of all things. He has no need. This is our God. Look at Revelation chapter 4 with me. Actually, before, let's go to Romans 11 first. Romans 11. Look at Romans chapter eleven, then verse thirty four and thirty five and what does it commute? Communicate there oh even verse thirty three let 's start there. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord, and who has become his counselor? Pause there for a second, even as I read it, I thought about that. Uh, there are times in life when, as a pastor, as just a christian um, I would order life differently. I would. I would order life differently. That is, God, relieve them of that hurt. God, why did that have to happen? God, can we turn back the annals of time and start over again? I would do that at times. I was sharing with uh, the West LA study on Thursday when I visited, and the question came up about even prayer and praying for someone, and God doesn't answer the way in which we had hoped. And why does he do that? Because God is a sovereign God and he knows what is best. He will answer according to his sovereign will. And I even said, I... Saturday night. I wrote Ben a note. I said, I'm praying for you. Then you wrestle with that a bit. But I shared with them on Thursday, I said, "Well, you know what? My mom died of cancer when I was seven, and people prayed for her. Ten years ago, my sister that we just thought, this is too early, cancer." And many prayed for her, and the Lord saw otherwise. He is the great counselor. Do we agree with that? And we must trust him. Notice verse 35. Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever and ever. Revelation 4. Revelation 4. What does it communicate here? Revelation 4.11 says word says what Worthy are you our lord and our god to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created nothing happens outside of god he is a god of aseity and why is this important you may ask okay great Um, this term, why are you talking to us about self-existence and what does this have to do with love and what does it have to do with even my pain, perhaps? Think about it this way. We seek love because of need, do we not? Yes. God loves because of a divine choice. God doesn't love because he has a need. God loves because of divine choice. In the creation of man... Uh, Man is created. And what did God say about man? It is not good for man to be what? Alone. And that's why some of you have sought out a bride. And some of you one day, maybe you will have a bride. And some of you one day will have a husband, perhaps. In part because God is saying there is a need. We have a need for fellowship with one another. We're not meant to live this Christian life alone. As a matter of fact, you can't. So God has no need. So when we think about, and you love me, and Yahweh says, and I love you, you have no need. Then why would you love? I have mentioned this before, but i mention mentioned it again. I've mentioned it every semester to my students at the seminary. It comes up at some point in time. Um, one of the church that I previously pastored, um, the, a fellow had been there. Um, for a couple years, and he eventually fired him, which they should have never hired him. And I'll say that, and I've, he knows that I've said it, and maybe he's repented since then because it's been many years. Um, he made a statement. When, they, when he made this statement, they knew, oh my, what have we done? He made this statement from the pulpit, and as he was communicating, leaning forward, telling people, God needs your love. Hmm. Is that a problem? No, that's a problem. That's a problem. Now we hear, and he's not the only one that said it, in much preaching a day you hear that sort of thing, as if God needs us, and this is why he created us, because God is having experience in this divine loneliness. What utter foolishness that is. Father, Son, and the Spirit. What does the Scripture tell us? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God. With God, Word was God, and with God. And John even says that He's going to return to the glory which He had before. This unique fellowship that is between Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, perfect in themselves, and He needs us. No. So then you say, "Say it again." What do you What do you mean by this? How is it connected to love? You should rest in the joy of knowing that He does not need you oh, wait a minute, you're really confusing me now. Because when I think about all my relationship that I have, I say, friend, I need your counsel. With uh, all of you brothers that proposed to your wife and you got in your knee, and hopefully you did it traditionally, right? Uh, And you got in your knee and you were trembling, thinking, what is she going to say? And then there's a yes, need. Our kids, I, I just heard that little sound of a, Didn't I hear the sound of a little baby? I know I did. I did. (laughs) That little sound of a baby has need, needing mom, needing parents, need. So you should rest in the joy that he doesn't need you. You And Again, why, Hargrove? Because think of what great love that is. So in part, even with our friendships, it's reciprocal in this this sense. Uh, You provide a need, I meet a need. So, in part, we can say, "Well, you do love me because of something." Would you agree with that? Uh, those that are married, i 'll just keep with this illustration. In part, you say, well uh, I 'm choosing you because of some attribute. Um, I'm choosing you because of something in you, some character trait. I'm choosing you because you have a sense of user, uh, a, a sense I'm sorry, let me slow down a sense of uh, humor I'm choosing you because you're, you really are a go-getter." That's going to help me in life. I'm choosing you because you're so serious about Christ. And that's going to help me grow in the grace and knowledge of Christ. It's all based on, I have a need. You will help meet the need. You're so organized. My life is a mess. You will help me with that. I have a need. Do we all agree with this or not? And you have friends. Hey, they really help me. They keep me accountable needs. God has no need. So he didn't choose us based on our potential. No. He didn't choose us because knowing that we would choose him. No. He didn't choose us because we had some capacity or this great potential. He chose us us as an act of grace. A God who has no need says, I love you. Number three is this. God's love is intimate because of foreknowledge. It's intimate because of foreknowledge. Look with me, Romans 8. Romans 8. Romans 8, 29 says what? For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brethren. Many brethren. So, he chose us. The word foreknowledge. Um, if we go back to the the Old Testament and this word for knowledge, we, we see it even in the book of Genesis introduced um, to know, Yada. So to know, but the word is communicating, to have an intimate knowledge of, even relations. And, and Adam knew his wife and they beget. And he knew her and they beget, if you will. And so This idea of having a love and affection for, so even when we introduce this thought in the New Testament, and this idea of foreknowledge is not, as some may think, that it's God looking into the annals of time, and he realized that in April of 1983, (laughs) Carl Hargrove would turn to me. So therefore I will predestine him. It is not that. What he's saying is that I foreloved you. I love you with an everlasting love. The plan of our salvation has always been true in the mind of God. Because there's no development in his mind, there's no development in his thought. God did not react to us as we made a decision in time. The reality that we would be saved is, is a subtle fact of heaven. God foreloved you. This is an expression of his love. Number four is this. God's love is sovereign because of providence. It's sovereign because of providence. Psalm 103.19 says that God's sovereignty rules over all. And Psalm 105 is a, a testimony of God's history of the people of God and how he orders them. And you may have noted, even when I sent out that anchored thoughts, that in Psalm 105, it tells us, I think it's verse like 13 to 17 in there, that God sent Joseph ahead of him. And he put him in fetters until the time of his word came to pass. Now, what is that communicating? You say in Psalm 105, as he's walking through the history of the people of God, God sent Joseph, but then we, wait a minute, I read the account. In Genesis, doesn't it say there that his brothers sold him into slavery? And we would all say, yes, it does. Then Psalm 105 says God sent Joseph, and all of of us would say, yes, it does. And that's the beauty of sovereign providence in our world. Providence, that is, God's particular expressions of his sovereignty. The events in life that occur, and they occur for a specific reason. Because God's redemptive plan is unfolding, and we take part in it. What a beautiful thing. And this is why we deny when we say, oh, boy, you are a lucky fellow. And we deny that, do we not? Oh, well, it's just by chance that I would meet you here. And we deny that. No, it's, it's good providence unfolding. But sometimes in life, there's a frowning providence. And that frowning providence can bring difficulty or hurt or questions and suffering. But God still uses it. Because we may think, oh, Providence, those are, those are the occasions when everything just works together for my life. It's that person that you run into and they say, and you've been looking for a job, and you run into them and say, hey, friend, what do you do? Oh, you know, I'm in sales. What, by chance that I would meet you here, my company has exploded by 500%. Would you send me your resume? And you think, oh, my word, look how Providence has favored me. That could be true. But it's also this, in that same job, you go in and they say, you know what, we're cutting back. COVID has hit us hard. We won't survive. Providence. Both providences. Both providences when we, rec- when we receive what we sometimes define as a blessing, which may or may not be. And providence is when we experience hurt and pain, which we sometimes don't want to see as a blessing, but it is if we're a steward of it. And God will grow us in the grace and knowledge of Christ as we experience it. Just me preaching this message about God's love is a providence. Why didn't I finish it before? A providence. Number five is this. How do we see God's love? And also, of course, let me go back. Just briefly, number five, um, I'm sorry, four, providence. Daniel, that he is the one that is ordering the very nations and all things. Of course, Romans 8, 28, everything works together for good. Um, Ephesians 1, he is the supreme ruler of all. Um, Acts 6, he is ordering their affairs of life. I'm sorry, Acts 2. Now, here's our fifth, Um, and it's this. God's love is intentional because of purpose um, What does this mean? purpose What does this mean? Uh, it's the idea that there's clarity in Scripture. You say, okay, again, what are you talking about here? Clarity in Scripture, what does that have to do with the Word of God? Well, the Scripture tells us in Psalm 119 that you know, we can seek the Word of God and we can know the Word of God. Uh, It tells us that God illumines our minds to the truth of his word. We see that throughout the psalm. But it's also this reality as well. We think about God's word being clear that we can know his will. We can look to the word of God and we can understand it. You don't need a, a seminary degree to understand the word of God will you understand it in some greater measure because you've looked at languages and you've understood books and things of that nature? Yes. But you can still read Isaiah 43 and 4 and you can say, oh, God is making a statement that he has a great affection for me. Oh, I've read through the book. Judah um, is in exile. This is a great truth because now God is making this statement while they're in sin. Oh, this is wonderful. God makes a declaration that he loves me. That's the message. And you can understand that. And yes, there are words and there are nuances to words that um, can fill in that understanding. But you can get the gist of the message itself. And that is an act of God's love because he is not making himself a God that is hidden. He is not making this a great mystery to us. His word is readily available to us. To be read and to be meditated on and to be grasped and to be applied. Here's our next consideration: God's love. God's love is intervening because of mercy. Because of mercy, intervening because of mercy. Ephesians two four tells us what. And as you have, some of you have been to my home, and we'll do the Hargrove. Uh, what, what do we call it? I forget now. <laughs> Sunday's at the Hargroves. Wow. That's it. Sunday's at the Hargrove. One of those moments, you know. Should have had that ginseng this morning. Sunday's at the Hargrove. You've been to our home and you remember in the living area above the fireplace. What do you see above the fireplace? But God. But God. God. My favorite phrase in the Bible. Because what does it tell us in Ephesians chapter 2? We were dead. Transgression. Sins courts of the world, prince of the power of the air, sons of disobedient, children of wrath. And then he says in, in verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us. But God. And even if we take that thought and we take it back to um, Isaiah, and we take it to Judah, and we say, you've committed covenant treachery. You rejected the prophets. You've disobeyed my moral law. You have sought after the gods of the Babylonians and all the pagans of the world. But, I love you. And for us as sinners, what God is saying, that divine intervention, being rich in mercy, this is who he is. He looks upon us and sees our need, and he saw every one of you, every one of you that know the Lord Jesus Christ, you were dead in transgressions, in sins. You walked the courts of this world. You were under God's wrath, and he says, but God, he intervenes. Are you happy, <laughs> thankful for God's intervention? And the thing about it, all of us, we're seeking to intervene for ourselves, but you cannot. As a matter of fact, when there is human intervention, it makes our situation worse. Not only in a practical sense, but I mean it in this sense, spiritually, because as you're striving to please God yourself, you're essentially denying God's offer, are you not? You're essentially saying, I can do this. And you're rejecting the cross. This is why it was so difficult for Jesus Christ and the Pharisees was when he was on the earth. Because they had self, what? Righteousness. At times, perhaps, and this is just a practical statement, at times it's perhaps to have someone that can tell you, you know what, I just am a sinner and I see my sin, but I'm not sure if I'm ready to change. As opposed to the person that has a MacArthur Study Bible, and they sit in church, and they have a sense of self-righteousness, and they don't believe anything is wrong with them. You may disagree with me. We can talk about that some other time. (laughs) Seven, God's love. God's love is necessary because of wrath. See, mercy is needed and only makes sense in view of the holy wrath of God. Because there is Trinitarian love and the Godhead loves his glory and his glory is expressed in holiness, God must punish anyone and anything that violates his holiness, anything that dishonors him. Therefore, they will feel his wrath. And I just, there are many places to look at it, but uh, Revelation 6, 8, 9, Revelation um, 11, Revelation 20. We see in those other chapters that God's wrath is going to be poured out upon the earth. And then ultimately God's wrath poured out on Satan. Then God's wrath poured out on everyone who is a rejecter of Christ. And what does it mean, God's wrath? It is this justified, holy anger. Is wrath. But if you know the Lord Jesus Christ, you've escaped it. You know, I, there are people that break my heart that I know that are presently rejecting God. I have family members. And sometimes every time I, I study something like this and I think about the wrath of God, I realize they're going to spend an eternity separated from God. It's painful. I, I wish it it weren't that way. But that's the reality. And you say, well, does God love me? You've escaped his wrath. A justifiable, holy, Eternal, unquenchable wrath. Number eight, God's love is instructive because of chastisement. Chastisement. Hebrews 12 tells us, what is that, 4 through through 11, um, that God chastens every son he receives. As a matter of fact, if you don't experience chastisement, then you're not a son, you're not a daughter. So these um, vile preachers that want to tell you that the the children of God never experience um, suffering or difficulty, they are absolutely wrong. And it says of Jesus Christ, even Jesus Christ, he says he, he cried out with loud cryings and moanings and he learned obedience from the things in which he suffered. And if I were to stop right now and say, how many of you today, right now, can say, yes, indeed, that was an expression of love because God demonstrated his love towards me when he chastened me. And sometimes God, like a good Heavenly Father, which he is, an all-wise God, he chastens us to turn us away from error. Is this not true? We're headed down a certain path, and what does God do? He chastens us in life to make us look back and say, Heavenly Father, The scripture is plain. Every son, he chastens. If you haven't been chastened, you're illegitimate children. Illegitimate. And just as in parenting we would say, do not spare the what? The rod. And as Proverbs tells us, if you spare, you don't love your child. You don't love him. Some of us may have grown up thinking, boy, I could have loved a little bit less love. (laughs) You don't really need to love me that much, Dad. I I get the picture. You know, I heard that message about nine theological implications of your love, so I'm okay. A loving, all-wise God, what does he do? Think about it. He chastens us to mold us into the image of Christ, does he not? So therefore, if the end result is that I'm more like Christ that is the great joy of any believer, then we can say, what a loving God. Now I'm more like Christ. Now the road to get there was difficult. You know, when I played football, I mean, I didn't ask my coach, hey coach, can we run 100 sprints, please? I never said that to him. But when he started blowing the whistle, you ran and he'd blow it again. And I hate it when he would tell us, well, you're going to run until I get tired. And there he is drinking He's drinking Gatorade with the whistle on his chair. (coughs) But when it came to the fourth quarter in a game, hey, I'm ready. Life comes. Hurt comes. How are you going to get, how will you get ready for life? If you don't receive the divine, wise chastisement of God. Now, notice chastisement and just suffering can be different. Chastisement, you're, you're, you're erring. Let me correct you and bring you back. And sometimes we just suffer because that's life. Here's the last thought. God's love is glorious. This is what all God's love is glorious because of penal substitution. I said there was a servant that would give hope. That servant would give his life. The one who was crushed. The one who was a man of sorrows. The one whom the Father placed on him all our iniquities. As the scripture says, all our iniquities fell on him. It's 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he was made sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It's Galatians two twenty, as Paul would say that he loved us and he has died for us. It's Colossians two thirteen and fourteen. The reality that Jesus Christ has taken away the certificate of debt, which was hostile towards us, he took it away on the cross. Penal substitution: a price was paid, a penalty was paid. He was our substitute. Can you say amen to that? Our substitute. You know, there are people today that have a problem with penal substitution. They think that somehow it's this sense of almost like universal child abuse, utterly ridiculous. It is the greatest demonstration of love in the annals of history. That a God who is a God of, remember, aseity, and aseity means what? What does that mean about God? From self. self, from self, self-existent, that he would give of your only begotten son. And so that verse that we learned as a child, for God so loved the world that he gave, it it should have great magnitude in our minds and in our hearts to think that he would give his only begotten son. You think, well, I I need something that's more developed and and, uh, perhaps deeper than just that simple thought, that simple meditation. I have nothing to offer you. I I have nothing to offer you. If, if you cannot bask in the reality that the Lord of the very universe, who has no need in himself, would give his dear and precious son for you, there's no homiletical skill that I may or may not know. There's no other training which I have received over the years where I can communicate something to you that in my mind is more glorious than that. He gave. He loves. So even in the midst of hurt and difficulty and questions, he loves you. Even when you have questions, okay, God, it was the why he loves you. Sometimes, as a, ch- a parent, you realize the kids ask us why, and at times we just say because. And there were occasions we say, oh, let me explain it to you. But there are many times when it's because I said so. Trust me. Trust the Lord. Know that he loves you. Amen? Amen. Father, we thank you for these words you've given us. In Christ's name, amen.